Good evening, afternoon, morning, or night, and welcome to Radio Moorpork, the podcast where we analyse and discuss Terry Pratchett's Discworld series one book at a time. This week at Small Gods, this week I'm Colm, and this week he's Steve. And it's evening here, because time is so important in this book, so I thought we'd just establish that right from the start. But it might be evening when they're listening, so... Yeah. yeah, but where we are, you know, it's all about the fundamental truth. Ah, okay. Yeah. Uh-huh. Okay. How much now for you? Um, <laughs> I mean, it was anyway, but even more so now. Hope you're all doing very well, and looking forward to our uh, witty banter about small gods and interesting points in that order. Oh, I I didn't have any witty banter or interesting. You points didn't prepare prepared. the witty no, banter. No, no, oh, shit, dude. I, I didn't. I didn't. So just, <laughs> don't worry. I've got a Roddy McDowell book. Roddy McDowell. Not a Roddy McDowell. Oh, the other Roddy. <laughs> Roddy Piper. Yeah, that's the one. Mm. Rowdy Roddy Doyle, I believe you're referring to. <laughs> okay, okay. Let's get into small gods. Um, I've been I've been looking forward to this because this one is generally very highly thought of uh, among the fandom and critical circles and uh yeah there's there's a lot to unpack here but we'll begin with uh with a uh, plot summary so steve you want to just um refresh people's memory as to what goes down in small gods uh this is the first time Collins let me read the plot summary so i'm i'm very excited okay so set in the capital of omnia small gods tells the story of the great god om who has inadvertently found himself trapped in the body of a turtle during the rise of the Ape Prophet, and his follower, Brutha, who is the only person left that truly believes in the great god Om. Om explains to Brutha that gods feed on belief, and that he needs his help in order to regain his believers and return to his former glory. Brutha is gifted with a seemingly perfect memory, but it is for this reason he is chosen by Vorbus, the head of the Quisition, to come along on a diplomatic mission to Ephib with the great god Om in tow. So while in Ephib, Brutha begins to learn of other cultures and religions, and when Vorbis attempts to burn down the Ephibian library, he takes a stand and memorizes every book in the library so that the knowledge isn't lost. Afterwards, having tried to escape the Quisition after they have taken over Ephib, uh, Brutha finds himself faced with crossing the Ephibian desert with only the great god Om and an unconscious Vorbis for company. He crosses most of the desert, learning some things about himself along the way, before Vorbis regains consciousness, knocks him out, and carries Brutha for the last leg of the journey, leaving Om behind. On their arrival at Omnia, Vorbis is named the Ape Prophet. Uh, Brutha contests this and is sentenced to death, sentenced to die for hearsay. As he is about to be roasted alive, the great god Om, still as a turtle, drops from an eagle's talons and lands on Vorbis's head, killing him instantly. In that moment, everyone in Omnia believes in Om, and he once again becomes the great god and ushers in a hundred years of peace. Hooray! Wasn't that fantastic? Yeah. So! Well, well, obviously you'd say that, but uh, listeners, <laughs> let me know how we're going and whether we should let near a plot summary again. Get rid of that crappy reader guy! Um, well, so tell me, you were looking forward to this for a long time. Did it live up to your expectations? Yes, yes, it absolutely okay. did. Um, Do you remember? I suppose what? We'll, we'll probably get to just how much in the when we talk about ranking it later. But um, I really, really, really loved this. I think I'd only read it once before, and had always kind of thought highly of it. And um, I don't know why I hadn't gone back and revisited it since the first time I read it. Oh, it's so good! It's it's brilliant. Like it's it's <laughs> it's, it's really really good. Um, it's 
the album, it's it's the biggest Discworld book so far, I think, and it like it feels really like a like like this is a point he's been building towards for a while. You know, um, the last few books, uh, Moving Pictures, Reaper Man, and Witches Abroad, have all been about stories in some way or another. Mm. And I mean, to a certain extent, all virtually all of Discworld books are have elements of you know the idea of belief and belief shaping us and us shaping. Uh, the things we believe in and so on but those books in particular like you had moving pictures that was about sort of the style or kind of uh, almost the, the, the shallowness of uh, a kind of like glamorized depiction of things outstripping the reality you had the counterpoint to that in Reverman where it's about like the importance of having some kind of mm. investment or narrative around something like death to you know give it more meaning and then you have Witches Abroad which is all about stories and how they used to dominate people and then this is one step up where it's like it's the biggest stories of all you know it's like religion um and just uh like all like all of the um a lot of, there's like a lot of elements you feel uh, i feel like from a writer's point of view that he's been perfecting and building at like the ability to switch back and forth between perspectives where you'll be say getting like pages upon pages about brother and um and then we'll cut to some side character for like a paragraph or so in a way that seems kind of curious but not all that jarring and then that will ultimately complement and tie back into the plot perfectly and there's like all these recurring metaphors and imagery like the, the eagle and the tortoise and then you have a kind of underlying thing that like vorbis at one point i think om says he has a mind like an eagle and brother is like the tortoise mm. you know even though he's going around with Om who actually is a tortoise mm. but you have the, the thing about like the desert and you know not being able to like hide from uh truth in the desert and the um the like the thing between the what the full what's the vorbis calls it the fundamental truth and and the um oh what was it the surface truth I think was it yeah yeah something, it's, it's like, something that. like that but yeah there's a, like all these kind of like recurring themes and ideas that the goats and the sheep thing where it's about like Om's um, first follower is a shepherd and sheep are stupid and need to be driven and goats are smart and need to be led mm-hmm. um, like all of these things that just uh, like from a writing perspective this is I feel like sort of similar to Morse uh, when we done that episode I said it was like a quantum leap in quality from the others I feel like this is something similar. Not in, the jump isn't as uh, drastic because like uh, the books that have preceded this one have been really really good anyway. But I just feel like this this feels like more of a realization of a lot of the stuff he was trying to do before, and like stylistically and structurally, he's doing it a, a little better than he has been in the in the preceding books. Mm-hmm. In a way where you kind of realize I've talked about before how. It's a somewhat of a weakness, but also a big strength of Pratchett that he goes back to ideas and that he feels like if he hasn't done it right or if there's more to be mined, he'll just take an idea he addressed in one book and do it again in another one. Mm. And I feel like that's what he's been doing in his last few books. And it's, you know, it's kind of come to fruition here. Right. Do you remember, um, I'm not sure if we mentioned this in the last podcast, but I think I, I remember saying to you at some stage that I remember reading it and not being too impressed by it, and mm-hmm. I was really eager to go back and see how how it lived up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I kind of came to the same conclusion what? actually. Yeah, surprisingly, I wasn't all that impressed by this book. Now, to be honest with you, I mean, 
it's a tricky thing because I can't really disagree with almost anything that you're saying. But for some reason, the book just doesn't grab me. And I think the reason for that is I don't really like Brutha as a character. I don't really buy his arc at all. And I don't think he's very engaging. Okay. And that's my personal. That's like this is now. This is my personal feelings on it. And mm-hmm. everyone has different tastes. So you know, if you want to shout me down and tell me I'm wrong and a fool and all that stuff, that's fine. Just but strap you to an iron tortoise <laughs> and until you die for heresy. You see, there are some things that I do like about it. Like I do think you're right that in terms of structure, he's got a much better grasp on things than even he had in the likes of Witches Abroad. Because you're right, he can jump from like place to place, and it's smoother. But other parts of it like um, for example one thing that always jumps out at me is I never get a good sense of what Afib is like when he's there like I like he kind of he sells the idea of philosophers and I get that it's a vaguely eastern kind of uh, concept of a, of a city but I don't really get much from it like I don't get the sense of it being of a lived in sort of place like it's not like Lanker or uh, Ankh-Morpork or anywhere like that uh, so it's just it's just a place that stuff happens and then it moves on, you know? Mm-hmm. So, um, it's it's not... it's This is the thing, and this is like the footnote that I'll put on every single book I ever talk badly about. It's not a bad book. It's a great book. There's lots to love about it. I love the idea of um, like a god trapped... Like an angry god trapped in the body of a tortoise. Brilliant concept. Absolutely love that. But, um, I don't know what it is about it. It's just that it's... I, th- I think actually another thing, uh, what you said, one of the uh, Terry Pratchett's weaknesses, but also his strengths, is the fact that he re- revisits concepts. And I think that's another thing that kind of irks me about it is that I feel like that this was explored quite succinctly before in, um, I'm not sure which book it was, that the idea of God's needing belief was. I think it might have been one of the ones that we didn't cover. I'm not sure. Oh, it's, it's, it, it's, something covered, that he, it's, it's covered a bit in Pyramids. Like Pyramids yeah. is, is the most similar to this one in terms of being like about this stagnant country that's dominated by an old mm. hollow religion that everyone only follows because they're so used to following it but yeah. you know can't conceive of a world without it yeah yeah it's i suppose the issue i have is it might just be timing i feel like if small gods had come before all the instances where he described, you know, um, the idea of gods need belief in order to survive. You know, it's it's not a case of people believe in gods because they exist. It's the other way around. He's definitely said that before in different books. I feel like if this had never been touched on and then I read this book, it would blow me away. But because it's something that's been touched on before and simply expanded in here, I'm not, I just, for some reason, I'm just not overly impressed by it. I don't know why. And, um... I, I, I don't know. Maybe it's just the fact that um, another thing you said was that the, oh, the previous ones have been stories and this is much bigger than that. But the thing is, I this is something we disagree on. I like the romps a lot more than you do. Like, yeah, you're um, very interested in the world building, whereas like I'm just, I just want to have a good time. It's why I like Witches Abroad so much. So um, I don't know. That's my personal opinion. I still like, I have lots of great points like here to talk about because it, it the themes are very rich in this book, at least. So, mm-hmm. like, you know, we've plenty to talk about here. Um, if you don't mind, I'll bring one one such theme up. Oh, well, do you mind if I just... Because, I, like, I feel like uh, cut in because it, it just it strikes me. That's so much that we disagree. But, like, even the, the, the stuff you bring up is, is the, like, specifically is the stuff I'm the exact opposite on. Like, I think <laughs> Britta 
I, I, I'd always pronounce it Bruta, but I think it's Bruta because there's a bit where Vorbus thinks about how awkward it will be if he's Father Bruta. So it'll be like Father Brother. Oh, it could be. Well, in any case, whichever, you know, it's tomato, tomato. Um, but I think he is one of the best character arcs in, like, uh, in any of the Discworld books. And I think maybe one of the few that I think can rival it that we'll get to in the next episode is McGrath over the course of the first three uh, Lunker Witches books. Mm. But Brother is essentially Carrot without charisma. He's Carrot who has to struggle, right? He's, yeah. he's that simple but not stupid. You know, he's kind of very loyal and largely literal-minded. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it's also kind of like a... He doesn't quite have Carrot's... Uh, prestigious sort of strength and, and courage it but he's quite a, a big hefty guy as well um but whereas carrot goes and sort of li- like his presence helps lift up the dissolute and more park city watch and while like obviously vimes and durston play a role in it like bruta alone doesn't lift up omniism you know he is mm-hmm. like he's if carrot he's what carrot would be is if Carrot didn't have charisma and showed up in like the Angmore Park City Watch of Nightwatch, where it's all just you know like corrupt and dissolute, and this is what he buys into and says, mm. "Yeah, I'm a watchman, brilliant, you know, I'm doing the right thing." Uh, Brothers like that, where he's like he's this wonderfully loyal, loving, simple, um, quite but quite strangely thinking individual. Like I loved a bit at the start when Um talks to him as a tortoise, and he says. Like, I'm a talking tortoise. How many tortoises do you know to talk? And he goes, well, I don't know. It could be any of them. And maybe you're just the first one who spoke to me. And he's not trying to be clever. It's just like, this is how he thinks. Mm. You know, that's, that's a wonderful way of setting up uh, very early. And, like, so, you know, he's he's basically in this, like, really awful, dystopian kind of fundamentalist Christian-Islam hybrid um, and has to find a way of like thinking out of that but in a path that doesn't lead to just an utter rejection of it because we see guys like Simony who are on the other end of the spectrum where they're uh, really militantly atheistic and hating omniism and because you see them and they're not painted in such a flattering light you know that's not what Bruta is progressing towards you know mm-hmm. you know it isn't just him going from naive believer to like cynical atheist so that he has to kind of find a way of reconciling this like loving, uh, simplistic, compassionate, believing nature with something that isn't as naive is brilliant over the course of the books. Like he teaches Om so much and I love how Om goes from uh, like even the way Om talks throughout it. Like at the start when he's saying, which is brilliant comedic effect, but when he, he's saying all that like, you know, smite your eyeballs with hellfire and it's a tortoise saying this yeah. and how he just stops saying that as it goes on. Because it isn't really working, and because the only one he can really communicate with is is Bruta, who obviously thinks so much differently than that, you know. Mm. And then at the end, you see how he has strange arm like that. I mean, that bit is just wonderfully succinct and quite moving. I find that when Arm goes up to um, Don Manifestin and is beating up the other gods, and he talks to um, Tang Tang, the the salamander oh, god, yeah, of, yeah. and he is Tang Tang says. Um, is uh like what's what's more what's more believers like fifty or one and he says no they're the same and he goes well you have like 
51 believers if this guy dies remind faster bench the fisherman you love 50 and Patang Thang says is that less and he says a lot less and mm-hmm. like you know that's how kind of much brother has taught him but also he teaches brother something because brother goes from being you know really simplistic and unable to think outside the structures of omniism to find this quite critical thinking almost like stoic uh philosophy about the whole thing like that part you uh you can't use your weakness as a weapon because it's the mm. only one i got you know um like he progresses so much over over the course of the book in the way that like not like, like the obvious parallel to him is tepic because uh, as i was just saying pyramids is the like closest thing we've seen so far thematically to this one mm. but you don't really get that with tepic because there is like the st- I, I i love how they start the pyramids structure with the intercutting between Tepic as a child leaving Frank Moorpark, Tepic as an adult doing his um, uh, initiation test into the Assassin's Guild, and what's going on in modern day the Jelly Baby. Mm. But because you uh, ping pong between him as a child and him as an adult, you don't see him developing from that part where he's like, as a kid, saying, uh, Oh, my dad makes the sunrise. And they're like, How does he do that? He's like, Oh, I don't know, you know. And then when he's an adult, obviously all of this is seeming a bit kind of fishy to him, and he's trying to reconcile. But he's he's just there, you know, like he doesn't Tepic so much doesn't develop over the course of um pyramids, he more like finds a way to reconcile his role and responsibilities as the ruler of the Jelly Baby with with what he has learned and the way of life he knows from uh Ank Morpork. Whereas Brutta actually has to learn and change over the course of it without just becoming a completely different character. Like I said it Com- we're complaining about Reaper Man that Wendell Poons uh, changes a bit too much from his death to afterwards like he dumps all the dirty old man stuff that was kind of funny and he just sort of becomes I don't know like a generic everyman kind of zombie and has the odd reference thrown into being you know old but other than that like he seems like a very different person than like almost too much of a different person mm. to the guy in moving pictures and start Reaper Man whereas Brutta I feel like doesn't you can draw a true line from the guy who's in the garden getting scared of this voice he's hearing to the hundred year old at the end. I mean, and like the end, like that's, that's one of, that's one of the best, most moving and most perfectly drawn, like, uh, protagonist antagonist relationships and moments that sum up what makes him different when he sees Vorbis in the desert after he dies. And, he still helps him and he mm. says he's Vorbis but I'm me you know um, yeah I, like I and also you're, you're saying about a, a, a Phoebe not, not being um, jumping out to you like there are essentially three settings in this book Omnia a Phoebe and the desert and mm. I suppose we count the boat as, as one of them but like and I think they're all so evocative you know and I think not only like from a thematic point of view like Omnia being so Omnia is like almost like it reminded me of um, 1984 uh, the way, like, mm. you know, that cu- culture of fear and that meeting between Drona, uh, Freyus, and Vorbis, where, you know, the, this meeting never happened, but they're also, like, you can tell both Drona and Freyus don't really buy into what Vorbis is saying, but they can't really say it to mm. one another. And then they have that sort of talking out of the side of their mouths conversation at the top. And there, one bit I, I thought some of the kind of culture of fear and Omnia wonderfully is the description of Brutha's grandmother. And when it starts talking about how formidable she is, I don't know about you, but initially I'm reading that like, oh, what a cool old lady, because it's this patriarchal society, but she's still a force to be reckoned with despite yeah. it. You know, 
But then when it just like almost insidiously segues into uh, implying how badly she beat and terrified brother, you realize, oh yeah, this you know this woman is uh, despite kind of man these seemingly admirable qualities uh, is like just as much of a product of this horrible dystopian fear riddled society mm. as anyone else. Um, and obviously, a Phoebe, you've got all the uh, the philosophers and that way of thinking and the idea. Like, I think the bits with them are so funny when they're debating in the pub and all this. And uh, when he says, uh, "What's we we I uh, a philosopher? I think, therefore, I are." And your man goes, "Am." And he says, uh, "Yes, uh, we we think, therefore, we am." And he he says it by accident, but everyone just embraces this. It's like, oh wow, that's <laughs> yeah. a really interesting. Po- is so like that setup is this kind of bastion of free thinking but uh not in a completely overly idolized way because so many of the philosophers are just sort of like self-important like idlers really uh they kind of just struck me as the wizards like, yeah in a different yeah setting more than anything else to be honest um has that comment about you know these guys are all able to do this job because someone's doing like all the heavy lifting elsewhere. Mm. Uh, I, although I feel like they're a bit more practically grounded than the wizards because they do point out about the um, like every tenth idea they have is a cracker and about the miser the miser the mirror that is able to burn the Omnian fleet. You know, mm-hmm. like the wizards might when their backs to the wall, like in Reaperman, pull off something, but you don't feel like they're coming up on a semi regular basis with ideas that actually help anyone else and like more pork. Yeah, yeah, um, but. But yeah, like those, like thematically there's that, but also just geographically and in their settings, like the idea of like Omnia being this city full of all the really shallow inclines for these long, slow processions, the hot baking sun and a thief having the like being sort of tiered and all of the houses facing out to sea and the part where Brut is in the, the palace and he talks about them not having a real understanding between what makes outside and what makes inside and you know mm. you just wander from a room to a courtyard to another room I felt all of that was like really give a really evocative sense of place um feeling we're just gonna be, we're, we're just gonna be uh, agreeing to disagree on a lot of this because I'm just I, I just don't agree with so much of that like um I don't know just for me for whatever reason a few just doesn't uh doesn't strike me as a memorable place whatsoever. It's it's one of the few Terry Pratchett books where I really like his writing style in that it moves very quickly and like it's very action orientated. But I feel this would have been a much better book to be more contemplative and uh, reflective and more descriptive. Like I would have, I would have loved to have you know a really really long section of the just to kind of take in the surroundings. Cause for me, that's uh, just going back to an earlier point. You said that. Um, Brute has a great arc and like he turns from he's the same person the whole way throughout but he he develops and evolves while admit that is true I feel that all his developments feel very unnatural I don't think I don't believe them when they happen you know Uh, like there's one in particular that always grabs me and I'm like that just feels forced where uh, he goes into the library and a guard I can't remember the exact phrasing of it he says something like um he tells the guard to just basically get lost and he says uh, why who are you he says oh do you want the Quisition to come after you and he says something in his mind like I can't believe I'm saying that and I'm like yeah I can't believe you're saying that either I don't yeah. think you would say that at all you know because he still has he still has this fear like just just previously he was like you know bringing Vorbis through the labyrinth and being very respectful and admittedly you know he it is you know he is raised in this uh, environment 
based on fear. So, mm-hmm. you know, it wouldn't make sense for him to be suddenly speaking up. But I think at that point, when he's in the library, I don't think he'd suddenly burst out like that. I think he'd still be cowering. I don't think it would happen as quickly as it does that he would become this, like, this prophet who is able to basically turn the entire idea of omniism on its head in what feels like a very short space of time. I know it's supposed to take place over a longer space of time than it takes to read the book, obviously. Mm-hmm. But because Terry Pratchett's writing style is so action-oriented, it's so quick-paced, it feels like it happens very, very rapidly, and I don't buy that. I just don't buy that Yeah, at all. but I don't see that bit as, like, that being him stepping towards being this more self-confident prophet type figure. I see that as he's been at the bottom rung of Omnian society his whole life and just being very respectful to his, you know, superiors and then being kind of respectful in a sort of patronizing way to him, like you see it as relationship with brother numrod mm-hmm. um who despite his like cringeworthy punning name is uh i think is a wonderful character for just depicting like that he's not really a bad guy but you see what a ruined shell of a person he is yeah from right. i like, I like, like lived in you know and survived in in, in omnia but so and then he meets then he uh, like so you know even though omnian society hasn't sort of treated him well in the sense that he isn't like particularly well off it like you know he can't see any cracks in it and then when he uh, he meets Vorbis for one thing he's terrified of you know dealing with some of this fear but he sees how Vorbis intimidates everyone and scares them and then he talks to the soldiers both on the boat and before they set out and the soldiers are really rude to him and I feel like that feels like a new thing for him you know that he's going around and seeing the other novices and the other priests maybe the other novices tease him sometimes but that's about it but for like you know to see the soldiers who are like, you know, and he, he sees your man loading up the camel for the, the secret uh, route into the desert and your man's just basically telling him to feck off. Mm. Um, I feel like that's that's a new thing for him. And then, it, like, so he's like, oh, I thought, you know, we're all omnians together. We're meant to be respecting one another and this guy's being really mean to me. And then he sees those same guys who are mean to him. Once Vorbis shows up, they're terrified of Vorbis uh, mm. and they won't do anything to him. And I feel like that's him you know he's learned to use that by the experience of what he saw in the boat coming over but i don't think he likes that he's using it you know i don't see like like that him saying oh do you want the position you might be a bit of gumption in that like it helps him to get what he wants but i don't think like that is the first step on the path towards you know what ultimately ends up with him like convincing them of decides to fight one another on the beach you know if anything i think it's like a misstep down like how he could have end, you know how he could have potentially ended up like an acolyte of Vorbis's if he just learned to embrace the, the idea of oh good I get, now I know this guy everyone's terrified of I can throw my weight around a bit you know mm. yeah. that's, that's one way to view it but it's just not how I view it personally were you or are you a religious person um not really. I, I, I think I had a similar upbringing to most people where you were brought up, did your communion, did your confirmation, but then you kind of just stopped going to church after a while, like when you were, I don't know, in your teens. That was more or less me. Yeah. And then on the other end of the spectrum, when you stopped, did you feel like very uh, contemptuous or disdainful or in any way forceful against the idea of religion afterwards? No, not really, no. Yeah. See, I feel like that might be the crux of this. Um, like, I I think I was more religious than I thought I was for a while growing up. In that, like, I didn't, you know, my family, like, we went to mass and stuff, but my family were into, you know, uber-religious. Like, I, you know, it never kind of manifested itself in any forms of, like, 
you know, any threats or denunciations of anyone else. Mm. And then we, like, I think collectively as a family, we all became like lapsed Catholics, essentially a combination of the, I know, getting older, all the abuse um, scandals coming out. And I'm not, so I'm not so much now, but I can remember feeling really intensely about these things. You know, I can remember oh, okay. like, like, really, like, I, I still wouldn't call myself an atheist. Like, I believe there is a God. I just don't think that like, any organized religion for me isn't really a way to you know reach that god or a mm. satisfying way of communicating with it in any way but i can remember believing really intensely in the way okay. that like i feel like brother believes here and the kind of wonder and horror that visits on you you know like that might... the feeling that there's this objective arbiter of all things mm. and um you know and that you are communicating with it in some way even if that's often feels like a one-way thing it's still like it knows you're there and it knows what you're doing and like a lot of this stuff like really hits its home to me because of that and i i don't want to like i hate for anyone who doesn't know me listening to this or even people who do know me to get the like you know wrong uh impression i like i wasn't any kind of a fundamentalist neither was anyone in my family but i still kind of i, I still think felt very intensely um about these things and I feel like that's that's probably why they hit home. And similarly, I've heard people who are atheists cite this book as the reason, like uh, like the reason they kind of gave them more an understanding of like why people believe in the first place and made mm. them less d- disdainful of religious people in the same way that like for someone like me who would have been you know on the other end of the spectrum, like this this book helps you get to the other point, you know, about like mm. kind of seeing all the um, holes and misuses and, so, you know, so on of, of, of organized religion. I do think you're right, actually. That that would make, that makes a lot of sense to me that for why it would um, resonate so much with you. I mean, for me personally, I feel like um, my parents probably approach religion the same way I'd approach religion if I ever had kids, you know, it says we'll, we'll do it until they're old enough to kind of think for themselves, but they're you know, I kind of felt they only brought me to church because, you know, they wanted me to get like, you know, good moral values and that sort of thing. And then once I was old enough to make my own decisions, it's like, right, you don't have to go if you don't want to. Okay, cool. So that was, that was just the end of it. Actual belief, I don't think ever really came into it so much. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, God would probably strike me down if I heard me say that. Thunderbolt, but, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but um, I will say one thing for it though. Now, see, whereas you clearly have a great love for this book, um, I... I, I have to say, I think the themes and the way it approaches things like religion and history and belief and all that sort of things is almost flawless. I have to give it that. Like, I mean, one thing that I absolutely love about this book and I think is absolutely sensational is the p- fact that like both strong believers of any faith and atheists could quote it as like for why they believe and what they believe, yeah. you know, because yeah. it's the whole idea that like, you know, if you believe in God, then you're right, God exists. If you don't, he doesn't. It works both ways and mm-hmm. that is a really impressive feat and like, the argument is solid, you know, it's like, some people need it, some people don't and it just, you know, if it works for you, it works for you. Mm-hmm. It's a very simple, pure message and I really appreciate it for that. So, um, I think in, I enjoyed it more the second time around because I was, I was looking for things like really, you know, interesting themes and stuff like that. Whereas the first time I read it, I was just looking for for the story, mm-hmm. and the story isn't where it does it for me. It does like the story is something I find I'd almost dismiss. Like I mean, it serves the themes and the issues that it's exploring well enough, 
but um, it's really those themes and issues where for me the meat of it is and I will say that I find it um, very very well well done um, just in terms of what they explore as opposed to the stories in my yeah. opinion yeah yeah um, I think uh, Sir Winters might say about the like uh, atheist or believer being able to decide an equal measure because Pratchett usually plays on this idea of like uh, opposite and absence like he talks mm. about you know yeah. darkness not being the opposite of light it's yeah, just yeah. absence and things like that like two things that you actually think of as opposed just being ultimately two sides of the same coin and he plays on it with uh, atheism and fundamentalism here mm. where like someone like Simony is you know ultimately becomes similar to Vorbis you have that part where uh, they're what, what's that kind of tank thing they have the moving turtle is it doesn't turtle, work yeah yeah, yeah. And so he just has this small force of men and Brutus about to be tortured and die. He's saying to Orn, like, oh, well, if he dies, there'll be a symbol and it's better that way. And Orn basically says, you're just like Borbus. Mm. Um, so you have to, and how then when Om manifests himself, like as a god, he, he likes having someone like Simony around his, whose atheism is so strong that, yeah. it, you know, uh, and, and someone, like, it, it's more preferable to the apathy of the vast majority of people in Omnia mm. um, well prior to, to sort of falling on Vorbis's head um, so yeah like I, I, I like that uh, like how he kind of pairs off those things uh, very well like ultimately it's less about belief versus atheism than just about like certainty versus ambiguity or flexibility you know yeah, like, yeah. like to be so certain about you know any one thing is like the wrong way compared to kind of being flexible and, and open-minded um, and uh, ambiguous. Although, and this is the one part of what I didn't like, is I feel like that's tempered sometimes by the fact that, like, ultimately, there is a god in this book who doesn't uh, require any belief, and it's Terry Pratchett, right? Like, he's writing it, yeah. so it's going to be his views. So, like, you can have characters who kind of get, um, who, like... Like when Orn is so sure that what Simony and his guys are doing isn't the right thing. Like, you know, and he says, you mean you don't know the difference? Like, it doesn't have to explain to the reader what the difference is because it, it assumes the reader shares that assumption, you know? Mm. So like, that's the kind of like, like there, even though it is sort of uh, ultimately sort of extolling the values of ambiguity and flexibility next to rock hard's steel ball certainty it still is that's kind of ambiguity and flexibility still based on a kind of firm foundation of, of, mm. of what's right you know and yeah. oh, like I often like share a lot of those ideas of what's right with Pratchett and like in this book so it doesn't bother me as much but it kind of feels like it undercuts that that argument a bit. it might it might be problematic if you found yourself disagreeing with any of his values which yeah. to be fair it would be hard to disagree with them because he has got a very it's based purely on like his writing. He seems to have a very strong moral compass, and from what he's trying to get across here. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I do see what you mean. Like it would be very problematic if you found yourself. Well, you know, I don't believe in that. Like, or it, it, I think it helps that he stra- he strays away from any um, controversial topics in this. Like, you know, his, his basic uh, ideas seem to be, you know, war is bad. You know, and, yeah, war, uh, war is bad. And, yeah, you know, fundamentalism like, is bad. He he doesn't do he doesn't like talk about anything like birth control or like you know anything like that or um uh i don't know you know 
homosexuality or something like that. Less controversial now, obviously. Um, um, but the, sorry, the, the bit that, that annoyed me particularly in was when uh, Didactylus, who was a character I really, really liked. Mm, uh, I as I was reading this, I was also listening to some um, Fort Doctor, Doctor Who audio play. So I was hearing Didactylus' voice in my head as Tom Baker, <laughs> uh, which I thought was really appropriate. But, um, but the bit when he goes to speak to... Uh, like all the followers Simony has got mm-hmm. and there's some kind of humor there and that like for him what he published was just you know oh this is an interesting scientific philosophical idea and to them it's an article of faith and I like that idea of you know there's no point in believing in things that already exist because they don't need to be believed in you know exactly yeah. but I also think when you know when he's up there and he's kind of hesitating and talking and uh like it's as Simony say something like, "Oh, you know, it's ruined now." He's mm. just giving them a bunch of facts, and what they needed was a symbol. And I think we're supposed to think like, "Oh, you know, Simony is just making the same mistake Vorbis and the, the Omnian fun- fundamentalists are." But you also feel like, well, you know, at this point, okay, the Daclas has met Brutha and um, but he doesn't know what they're going to do. Like he doesn't know this book is going to end that way. What you know, mm. this miracle of like Om um, falling on Vorbus's head and killing him and restoring belief. So essentially, Simony and his followers are the only hope Omnia has to be freed from this fundamentalist theocracy they're in. You know, yeah. and to get kind of superior about it and say like, oh well, actually in my country we we don't make this stuff into some mm-hmm. belief system. It's just rational fact, and I don't know what you guys are messing around with with your turtle moves things. You're just as bad as those guys. It's like. I don't know that like that that kind of annoyed me. Like I felt like you know that's like, um, yeah. I I I just thought like, hey, okay, you can make the high ground, uh, high minded moral thing of sometimes those two sides are just as bad as each other. But it's it feels like in most situations you kind of have to pick the lesser of two evils if you wanted to make any difference. You know what I mean? Like, what's better for Omnia? I'm saying, oh, ultimately what's better for Omnia is what, what happens with Brutta. But as far as Didactylus and Orno, the choices are like Vorbus's theocracy or, you know, an uprising by Simony and his guys. Mm. And they kind of pour scorn on both of them. And it's like, well, like... You know where where do you where, where do you get off doing that? You know you, you well, like you can just you can just feck off back home to a fieve and live in your like live in your nice um, free thinking society. Well, at least poor feckers have to suffer under uh, like you know Vorbus's rule because you got too high minded to try and galvanize um, mm. to a- any kind of opposition to it. You know, but I suppose it, it makes sense for him to do it because they're all acting under his philosophy, which he never intended to. You know, have this. Oh sort of yeah, impact. I mean, certainly character-wise, like I, I get it. Like I like that Didactylus is just completely unprepared to mm. for something like this. And I looked at the thing about like um, he's speaking in philosophy, they're listening in gibberish, and how he's used to normally talking in front of philosophers who are just too busy thinking of what they're going to say yeah, to yeah. really listen. So it makes him less nervous. Like I get why he can't really, you know find a way to say what they want him to say. Mm. But I just feel like the book sets it up real like oh, they should have never, you know, relied on anything like that. And Simony's kind of, um, like, I feel like Simony's assertion of, you know, he's giving them facts. And, like, that's supposed to ring off alarm bells for us of, like, oh, well, this guy is barking up the wrong tree as well. Where I think, like, okay, yeah, he is. And I, I like the fact that, you know, 
it isn't so black and white where it's like there's the evil omnian theocracy and the brave resistance like i like the fact that the resistance color mm. but i also think you've got to look at where he's coming from and and you know simony or didactylus simony like right, and, yeah. and, and and look at him like you know sort of feel like he's um not just hanging out to dry for forever hoping that didactylus would have been able to galvanize his followers in the first place you know what i mean mm. i feel like yeah, I get why Didactylus, the character, can't do it, but I feel like the book, from a metatextual point of view, sort of makes fun of the idea of Simony even relying on this, you know, or, or, or even trying to do this in the first place. And, uh, whereas mm. I feel like if I was in his shoes, what else would you do? You know, what else could you do? Yeah, I, I think I get what you mean, all right, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm not certain if I agree or disagree with you, to be honest. Um, Funnily enough, while you were talking about that, what popped up into my head was um, uh, the Troubles, weirdly enough, <laughs> like the IRA and like, you know, uh, British colonizers, all that kind of jazz. And like, um, it, it kind of, I, I, I kind of felt there's some parallels there in terms of like, you know, on the one hand, you know, we're being oppressed. Uh, help, help, we're being oppressed. <laughs> and um, But then like, you know, and while a lot of people are very, you know, very much, you know, up the rad and all that kind of thing, there's... Um, you know, it's still problematic. A lot of people were very, had a lot of serious issues with like all the violence that like you know the IRA were taking. That's kind of um, I, I I don't really have like a, a central point with this. It's just a, a parallel that I found myself thinking of while you were describing it there. I thought, I wonder, is there um, any kind of uh, point I could make on that? But I don't think there is. No, it's just a parallel. I should, I should really. find out, listener. Steve is wearing a bowler hat and an orange sash. He's saying this. Um, no, I, I, I think it's a decent parallel because it's sort of like, and again, you have to get like really, um, like I don't know, like wade into a, a troubles uh, mm. discussion for for fear of what might bite me when I'm in the deep waters there. Yeah. But um, but you have a you know say from the the point of view of uh, a nationalist, you have the British oppressors and loyalist terrorists, and you have. DIRA resisting them, but also the methods they're choosing to resisting them being, you know, just as bad in a lot of ways as the, mm. you know, what the UDA or British Army are doing. Um, but at the same time, that doesn't take, you know, take away from the point that there is oppression going on in the first place. You know what I mean? Yeah, like of course. If, yeah. if you're a, a nationalist in Northern Ireland or, you know, in Southern Ireland who feels strongly about it, like the fact that DIRA are doing terrible things doesn't, you know, kind of, um, make the uh, your your uh, like passion or, or belief in the justness of a united ireland mm. any worse just because someone else has tanked that and I, I sort of feel like something like that would you know simony and things where it's like he's like the methods he is choosing and ultimately his way of thinking is really you know is really bad mm. but I, I i feel like the the book sort of doesn't have a lot of sympathy for well, could and that doesn't have a lot, but could have more sympathy for why he's thinking that way in the mm. first place. You know, it might be um, a case of like that he's just betraying him as a necessary evil, as you say. Um, but it is, a, I think, maybe the point that Terry Pratt's trying to make uh, put across with Didactylus is that um, it's putting him in. Okay, now, now, now I realize as I'm about to say this, I realize I'm going to be agreeing with your point. <laughs> but um, <laughs> you said that like it's this horrible thing. Man. Oh no, <laughs> he does. No, I was going to say that maybe it puts the Dactylus in like a situation where he's completely uncertain. In that, you know, um, on the one hand, yes, you know, uh, the Omnian Empire is you know terrible and oppressive of his people, 
um, but by the same token he's like uh, very cynical of Simon's methods but you know he, he's as you said like I mean what can you do you know you have to choose one or the other and like on the one it's it's, it's basically there's no real winning answer there there's no mm. right answer you know he can't think of an alternative answer so what else can he do except say like I don't like your methods but I don't like that either so I'm just going to dump on both of them you know mm-hmm. but um, as you said because he's, he comes down so heavily on Simony yeah I think you're right it might be he, he paints him in a very the book paints him in a very poor light actually Simony but um, it doesn't offer up any alternatives or anything like that so that could be seen as troublesome I mean, well, the alternative is, uh, of course, Brutha and yeah, the way he yeah. comes about it. But um, even that's problematic, especially if you are coming at this from an atheist or even agnostic point yeah. of view. But um, well, I think I think Brutha's way of thinking is like, to me at least, a good alternative to about like, yeah, Seventies yeah. and Vorbuses. But I'm I, I'm more mean in the thing of like, in that moment they couldn't have anticipated what Brutha would do so their choices are essentially mm. side with this resistance even if you don't entirely agree with them or just let them to you know be ground under the heels of the current Omnian regime and yeah. you know they, they sort of they're able to hedge their bets because the book ends up giving us a happier ending than easier of those mm. two alternatives anyway it um, could be actually this uh, might uh, be a bit where <laughs> Uh, Terry Pratchett's views are kind of problematic because he's all very, very anti-war, but that's not really much good in the face of war itself. Like, you can't yeah. just stand there and yeah, say, like, true. yeah, yeah, this is wrong. This is all right. Well, you're going to die then. So, you know, mm-hmm. it's it's uh, a bit problematic. But, you yeah, know. I've heard it applied, actually, as a, as a critique a lot in um, interesting times, which I'll be curious when we get to, like, this kind of uh, closed-minded sort of contempt for... Uh, re- resistance because that mm. also brings bad things when it's like well you know sometimes you don't have the luxury of choosing exactly but yeah. it, you, like uh, we've spent a good time talking about it and it's, it's an interesting um, debate but I say for for me I mean you obviously had a lot more reservations about this for me that was like the one bit about the book where uh, like that kind of I kicked out against Didactylus in general again I, like I, I loved him He's I loved that bit when Vorbis brings him and has him denounce his the Galileo moment where he has his denounce his, oh, tr- yeah. his trustees about the total moving and he just embraces him completely and says <laughs> oh yeah do you want me to run a new one yeah absolutely and I, and Vorbis for the first time in the books or for in the book is completely thrown by this you know and he doesn't know what to say I actually in particular, and then when he, when he throws the lamp at his head and says but it does move um, <laughs> in particular great. actually in that moment I really love how um when he embraces it, says, yeah, and I can write up this all, all you want. You know, you want to say the world's a giant ball? I can write all the balls you want. <laughs> yeah, that yeah. in particular is a great line. <laughs> like, it's very, very, like, sly. Tommy's in so much in the, in the cheek, it's actually flowing right out of the cheek yeah. at that point. <laughs> He's very much uh, living up to his name there. Did you get that? Didactylus. I two, was trying to think. Two I, fingers. Oh, there you go, right. I didn't look it up. I remember meaning to look it up because there's always really interesting, uh, you know, meanings behind a lot of the names in this. And I like, thought, oh, that must be something, but I just forgot to do it. Um, a few quite actually questions for you just on the nature of religion. This is kind of going to be a quick fire round more than anything else. So just a few things that like I was kind of thinking of. But um, based on like what we've seen in the book and in particular in the desert where all the small gods are and they're kind of just floating around as nothing with no believers... It's, this is almost, um, you know, if you're if a tree falls in the forest and no one's around to hear it, doesn't make a noise. Mm-hmm. But it kind of brings about the idea: does religion itself, like, 
and take the meaning of religion to be whatever you want, does it exist if nobody actually believes in it? Um, I suppose it depends what you think the meaning of it is. Like, this it, is like, it do, like if you get very spiritual about it, it doesn't in the sense of like like I'm not really existing other than mm. brother's belief in him, despite like that there's an entire country dedicated to religion. But if you look at it more cynically and say, well, you know, uh, say from like from an atheistic point of view, it would be like, well, it does because, you know, it's there and people yeah. worship it and believe in it. And, you know, if you're looking at it from an atheist point of view, you're like, well, there's not a God anyway, but religion exists because the worship of these non-existent But I take, for example, exists. like even something like Christianity. I mean, that came around in what, like zero BC before that, like. And like this, <laughs> I was about to say, if you had to, if you had to give a moment's thought, I'm like, well, no. I came around in about I know three hundred eight years, <laughs> sometime around there. I'm not certain exactly of the date, but uh, it's there somewhere. But like you know, it's um like we were both brought up like you know Christian. We're kind of it's kind of hammered into our head like this is the be all end all. Like you know, God created everything and like that. But like it wasn't around before like yeah. zero BC. Like there was like. I mean, if you take the teachings into account, like, you know, there's the whole Adam and Eve thing, but I think even a lot of, like, Christian believers yeah, you know, take that with a pinch of salt. Yeah, so, like, so I, I like that, too, like, then, like, I suppose a weird theological question where it's like, okay, like, like if, you know, if you're looking at it from Christian, but if you have Jesus arrived to save our souls in, you know, in mm. zero uh, BC, and then, like, since then, anyone who's been a Christian has been saved. Like, what about all the poor feckers who just happened to live before Jesus was born? <laughs> like, you know, they never, they never had a chance anyway. Uh, Actually, like... and that brings us to a great point in both this book and in real life. But, like, that's just, like, you know, very obviously just a revisionist history, like, at that point. Because, you know, after that, there was, like, well, Adam and Eve and mm-hmm. all the other fellas who came after him. I, I forget most of them, but... um like that's something that kind of comes up in this book as well like the whole nature of history and like you know how important it is that things happen like remember uh, I think Luke C at the very very start when he's yeah, traveling yeah. and I said oh I have to stop off at a couple of battles because if I didn't watch them then they'd just be what was it events yeah they'd just or, be yeah, events they wouldn't be historical yeah yeah just be things that, yeah, yeah I, li- I like that a lot and then the whole nature of like the the prophets and kind of their the fact that you know like they are just essentially guys who went into the desert at the right time and came out with enough force of personality, mm. and, but their their words become kind of sacrosanct, be, you know, um, because they're they're imbued with all the uh, stuff around them. The event had a lot of uh, historicity about it. Didn't it? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I get I get kept I kept laughing at when the prophet was called Cena. Uh, <laughs> John Cena. <laughs> just um, <laughs> but, that's just an important uh, thing just for our listeners. Um, this is just us flaunting our college education that <laughs> this came up. But um, historicity is an important um, topic that we were talking about in college, about the whole authenticity of historical events and, you know, how relevant they are within the spectrum of all of history. Um, so, you know, you see how certain events that take place in small gods, um, they, they're, they're kind of, uh, I suppose... I'm not even sure how you'd use... I know what historicity means, but how you'd actually use it in a sentence. Like, I'm saying, do certain events lack historicity? In, or, you know... I'm just, um, oh, uh, but, well, I don't know what, you, what, what you're... In particular, I'm thinking that. of when uh, Brutha arrives in the temple and he confronts Vorbis. And, you know, when Vorbis kind of lifts his face oh, as if he's yeah. hoping that he'll yeah, yeah. hit him or something. I'm like, I feel like the way... If Vorbis had gotten his way... I think he would have written that in such a way to say, and Brutha came in and he 
you know, attacked uh, yeah. uh, Vorbis and uh, he was brave. Uh, Vorbis bravely fought him off. He's like, in that situation, I feel like says, oh well, that event technically took place, but it kind of lacks a bit of historicity because you know it's it's not one hundred percent accurate, but it works in the context of their history. Yeah. If well, you know I mean, I suppose it comes to Vorbis's fundamental truth against like yeah, yeah, dude, where yeah, he once brought it to hit him so that everyone there can see, and then he can you know denounce him. But if, if like, Om never ends up killing him anyway, and, say, Brother just dies and a turtle, then Tavorbis, like, the fundamental truth is always the same, you know. Exactly. Brother died yeah, yeah. because he denounced the prophet, and, you know, whether or not he actually uh, hits him. I, like, I, 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 I love the echoing of that truth. It's chilling. It reminds you of, like, it's the 2 plus 2 equals 5 business in 1984, and when Vorbis talks about, like, truth comes from within, not without, and, mm. you know, uh, like, that really is, like, the conversation between O'Brien and um, Winston in 1984, where he says, like, oh, no, I can make you believe you're floating here, and all that matters is, like, once we control your mind, we, can, we control the world. Um, Do you know, one thing I actually find really interesting in the way that um, Brutha and Vorbis have this kind of, you know, metaphorical standoff of the entire book in that it's great. One one thing I do like a lot about uh, Brutha, it's well, I don't like and I do like at the same time is what a simple character he is. In that he takes so many things literally, like that moment when you said before, where like maybe all the turtles talk, mm-hmm. I just and they just didn't say anything. But um, I think the act of him remembering the library and when he tries to rewrite it but he can't read is a really interesting action to take place in like the book mm-hmm. because. Whereas uh, Bruce is kind of a case of, you know, he he hears things, he believes them, and he's just kind of like, and this is how it was, you know? And, like, you can see any time he's describing something to Om, he's like, you know, um, you came down, like, from the desert, and you spoke to this prophet, and you said these things. And for him, that's simple fact. He doesn't, mm-hmm. like, interpret that any way. Whereas Vorbis, he does interpret things certain yeah. ways to, like, fit his view of the truth. And I feel like in like that's embodied especially well in the way that... Brutha like takes all of the knowledge in the library and he's able to very simply transcribe it exactly as it was and he doesn't even understand what he's writing he's just putting it's mm-hmm. it's it was like it's resting in his account his account being his brain and he's just like you know moved it straight on it's it's a, it's an interesting action it's a really interesting symbolic action to take place in the book I think uh when you take it in the context of um uh history and historicity and historiography yeah, yeah. And it's, it's sort of like, like he's almost the only one who can be trusted with it because you know what he's going to reproduce is the uh, is his memory of the actual library and not sort of mm. him uh, you know maybe rewriting those books in a way he feels they should have been written or exactly anything yeah like that like he can't like look over something and says well I don't believe in that so I'm going to change that like it's just perfect um, like whatever way he sees it he just sees shapes Mm-hmm. Um, do you know another thing I found really interesting and this is something you might disagree with I think oh I do it, more than, considering the way this has gone so far <laughs> but um, I always like when uh, stories have a bit of ambiguity but it's not too on the nose and one thing that I thought you could read as ambiguous although the book certainly leans a certain way on it is the fate of Brother Murdoch remember who oh yeah yeah I really like that, that, that I, I really enjoy that in that um, it's it's strongly implied that oh wait no is Brother Murdoch the one who gets murdered at the start for, by Vorbis it is isn't well, it well yeah but, but it's it's strongly implied that he murdered him but they never come out and say it like like Vor, uh, mm. Vorbis 
when Brota is going to a feed with Vorbis, his, he thinks Brother Murdoch is killed by the Ephibians. Mm. And then they go to a feed when they talk to the tyrant, and he says the things about, like, oh, you know, they threw, um, uh, like, fruit, rotten fruit at him. And I think they might have threw a few rocks, but they didn't stone him to death. Mm-hmm. They just kind of wanted to chase him off because he was, um, you know, haranguing them and annoying them with what he was saying. Uh, so uh, so then it, it's strongly implied that Vorbis must have killed him uh, to get and But again, yeah, that never quite comes out and says so it. Really- we don't know whether, whether maybe he just died on his way back to mm-hmm. Omnia anyway or whatever but it's that like uh, it's just interesting that like you know we when I say we didn't witness it right now I mean like Terry Pratchett didn't write it objectively mm-hmm. how it happened everything we hear is a second hand account and even even if we take like um, uh, who, who was it again who said the true fruit Adam and that kind of guy the tyrant yeah the tyrant yeah um, even if we take his word for it saying oh yeah they just threw some fruit that sounds harmless but Take into account, what well, if the fruit was coconuts? They could have killed them, <laughs> you know? Yeah. So, you know, like, how we interpret it is, like, you know, it's 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 not objective. And that's, like, history itself isn't objective. So, that that's one thing that I found really interesting, especially because, especially because we don't see or hear exactly what happens. We just hear implications. And even the fact that Terry Pratchett himself implicates, you know, that's kind mm-hmm. of uh, feeding into the whole uh, notion of it as well, of, like, you know, we're just taking somebody else's word for it, and like, how can we really trust anything that we don't see with our own eyes? So, or mm-hmm. uh, read or hear or whatever. Yeah, it's like those are the spaces where the vorbices of this world flourish, where they can kind of <laughs> put a spin on it and come up with that fundamental truth that just seems so convincing. It becomes the lens through which we view everything else, you know? Yeah. Uh, and those kind of ambiguous seemingly ambiguous events can suddenly become very certain people say it's like the Ephibians murdered brother Murdoch mm. and it you know it hardly has to even been like proved or said it's uh, on the subject of Orbis what did you think of him? I don't know actually he's someone who I kind of flip flop a bit on like on the one hand I really like the way he's set up he sounds utterly terrifying but I'm not certain how I feel about his arc like I the fact that he he suddenly becomes afraid of Brutha and he has these moments of like rage and towards the end he's almost he's less calculating and uh, he kind of just panics and he he has a moment where he sort of rants at everybody where um I think just when Brutha says that you're going to die or something along those lines and uh Vorbis just turns to the crowd and says, "Well, it doesn't matter, you know." He's just—he's yeah. almost like a Bond villain towards the end. Where yeah, to where like I, I really like him as a villain. Um, mm. I think he's kind of—he's like the bastard child of Dios and Veterinary. One um, one quick thing I just like to say: I would I love his physical description. That's something in particular I love. Yeah. Like in fact, like, I love the the moment where Terry Pratchett decided the third thing you notice about him is uh, his height. And the second thing is his eyes, which are completely black. And the first thing is his skull, which is like completely hairless. Like I just, the physical description of it, I love. It's mm-hmm. his character that I'm kind of iffy on. Yeah, I have a very clear picture of him. Mm-hmm. Uh, and for most of it, I, I really like his, his character. Like that, I found it really chilling that bit when Brother goes in to see him, and he's just sitting in the darkness, staring at the wall, and like, you know, it said like he like he wrote letters, and you know, could presumably like read the book, uh, the Omnian books, but he, you know, he. He never seemed to like. You just mm. see him kind of staring, and I, I, I like like that. They never have to say it, but that really speaks to the idea of like he's 
belief in him just being here you know hearing his own thoughts so echo off his own head because yeah he never, you know he he presumably has read this stuff at some stage but like for most of the time all that he's satisfied with is his own thoughts you know that he's not like uh reading or engaging more and the way he uh intimidates people and the way he changes people then too mm. like i i think maybe the the idea of him making people like him is lent on maybe once too many times to seem a, it seems a little on the nose but it, it feels convincing you feel yeah like, absolutely it, no, like, I agree with you. yeah this like it isn't just this superpower written into the book that he's given you really feel like that like just the, the personality he has and just the way he, the mm. society in which he operates is what he would do but i yeah i do i do think there's one one or two bits like i i i didn't get the part when he was afraid of britta um because then I was thinking, well, why did he bring him back from the desert? Why didn't he just kill Bruta in the desert and come back himself? Mm, and it makes yeah. sense without that bit because you realize that, like, um, he uh, he wants um, he wants Bruta to turn against him. You know, when he turns his, as you say, when he turns his face to anticipate a hit, he wants, so that he can denounce him, and this will kind of cement his, you know, uh, mm. his place. But I don't get like if he. If he has any fear or doubt of that, like why? Do you, and that bit then when he um he uh, rants at when Brutus tied down and he says like oh oh made this city man made this and I feel like even if he doesn't believe in him like it's, it's very made very clear that like Brutus the only one who actually really believes in him and what Vorbus mm. just believes is kind of his own thoughts just dressed up with a sort of godly veneer even if he doesn't believe in him I. I thought sure that like he believes he believes in him exactly if, if, yeah if you know what I mean so him saying like oh really um unless unless that's just him referring to like that at that stage he knows that Bruta thinks um is the tortoise and he doesn't believe that's um and he's just kind of it doesn't feel like taking that, though, a piss out of Bruta for that like saying like oh your tortoise mm. is he gonna show up you know but yeah it doesn't that wasn't entirely. Clear. I think um, it's so a. There are, but I, I do. I love the bit when he when he dies and mm, like in, yeah. him in the desert, and his certainty fading away and how this would ever happen and deaths like um, have you heard that hell is other people? Yes, yes, of course. In time, you will learn that that is wrong. That's a great. He's still there. What's the death says? Uh, he's brother says he's been dead a hundred years and he says time is different here, more personal. Yeah. Oh, you mean a hundred years could pass like a few moments? I mean, a hundred years could pass like infinity. <laughs> it's yeah. I think it's a problem that um, because we, it's happened twice now in succession, it might just be like a phase that uh, uh, Terry Patrick goes through. But he doesn't. It's 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 a slight weakness he has in that he doesn't do. He he can write villains very well, but confrontra- confrontations between protagonists and villains tend to be a bit melodramatic and I don't think like because I mean in because of uh, Granny Weatherwax and Lily's character like that just felt very anticlimactic at the end like we discussed that last week and this one it it's not it's not nearly as bad I mean it's only in the very last moments I feel that he kind of lapses but um, you know it's 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 still there and I feel like I feel like he could have reined it back in a little bit and it would have been a bit more effective yeah well uh, I feel like you know, ultimately, what happens to Vorbis feels much more climactic than uh, Lily. The, the, the action, but, how he dies, yes, but just yeah, how but he's he, acting. But even, at the time. even when he, like, you know, like, like, oh, it builds up like that. He really has everything to the point of defeat. You know, he is now the prophet, 
Bert is tied to this torture device and is dying. Um, and like, and then the, the after the, the the scenes after he dies as well. But I yeah I, I I more think it's like the like in um in in Lily's case uh, I I feel like she's what you miss is that like she's set up as uh, like you know a really wordy rival for Granny and that sort of falls apart when mm. um you know as you said like when Saturday shows up and she's just impotently hurling fireballs at him and and you think oh she's powerful but actually she like she's so much more um, I, suppose, I don't want to say stupider but kind of like uh, less capable yeah less capable and less like simpler in her kind of like in her uh, headology than, than mm-hmm. Granny is um, so it's sort of anticlimactic in that way I feel like this is so much anticlimactic it's just the, the trade that you have these two opposites of like you know Bruta's simple but sincere belief versus mm-hmm. you know that's at the start really ineffective and has him right at the bottom rung where he's just kind of a passive sheep in this really horrible society and eventually kind of kind of goes towards being some someone who can change this whole society for the better and Vorbus who is shaping and changing that society but has no real belief and you know mm. is like I, I feel like it's not so much a kind of dramatic climax of it it's just that like thematic tread gets a bit like uh, torny and knotted when those bits where where well I don't want, want to speak too generally because maybe other people feel differently but me and you at least suddenly kind of seem to struggle to like oh wh- why why is Vorbis thinking or acting this way here this mm, doesn't mm. feel quite it's, consistent it's, with how he acted before like uh, it's not yeah. really a failing I suppose I mean well it's not like that it's it, it's a bad ending for the character it's somewhat imperfect you know mm-hmm. it's just you know, it's not quite the ending you envisioned for him. I mean, I personally felt that it would have been more interesting. It's the thing that always gets me is just the way he rants at the end. I just feel it just doesn't feel in character at all. Um, but you know, who knows? The one thing, um, actually, just one point I want to say that I really enjoy in the way he's described is um, at one point, Arm is saying like, uh, "Well, what does he eat? He's like really light." He says, "Oh, he." Uh, I think he has stale bread. He's like, what about fresh bread? Oh, he waits for it to get stale. I was yeah. like, yeah, I bet he does. I'm like, yeah, that kind of, that sounds, that sounds very Vorbis, that thing, yeah. you know? I, I do think with, like, with Dios, he's one of the best examples of, like, a bad guy who doesn't and probably can't believe that he is the bad guy. You yeah, know? Like, that's true. Like, yeah. you really buy why he thinks what he's doing is right, mm-hmm. even though he's, like, I mean, he's, he's in a lot of ways a much worse person than Dios, who, who was kind of like more sympathetic. Um, but even more so, even though in, in Witches Abroad you had that confrontation with Lily and Granny that is built around the idea of Lily thinking she's the good one, mm. I still feel like like Boris is even more convincing in like believing that he's he's absolutely you know definitely yeah. kind of a force for good in the world. Um, <laughs> Yeah, he believes in in the fundamental truth. Like it isn't a, like it's a rhetorical tactic he uses to get what he wants. But like, like you really know he like he believes that's how the world works. Yeah, no, I absolutely agree with you. <laughs> um, what did you think? Actually, uh, I remember just as I was writing out the summary. Actually, I was thinking of um, Bruce's arc again, and won't won't go into that too much. But I felt. Like the big turning point, what what should have been the big th- turning point was um, for Bruce. It was when he arrives in Phoebe, and 
Is it a Phoebe or a Phoebe? I think it's a Phoebe. I would have called that a Phoebe, yeah. yeah. But he arrives there and he encounters all these philosophers and there's this moment where uh, he encounters them all and he's absolutely shocked by people thriving on the idea of not knowing yeah, and not yeah. uncertainty. And um, just on the whole idea of, you know, the binary between knowledge and ignorance, you know, just the way it's represented in this... Um, I love how they use uh, the whole the turtle moves thing like you know it's kind of like the flat earthers uh, <laughs> that whole concept here and it's kind of flipped on its head yeah. it's, it's a very simple thing to do but it's really really funny the fact that everyone's totally and utterly convinced that it's like it's obviously a big flat disc on a turtle how could you be so stupid to think it's a big ball floating in space it's like what does it float on nothing <laughs> it's, it's a wonderfully effective thing um but yeah, I just I, I just uh, really really enjoy that. And um, oh, what was the other point I had here? Sorry. Uh, so again, to what you were saying there, though, I I like that. Like when Bruta is initially um, uh, confronted with this thing, it just sort of confuses him and distresses him while provoking his thoughts. That like it takes a while for all of that sort of critical thinking and philosophy and doubt he encounters in a Phoebe and. Then in the desert and through his arguments with Om, for all of it to sink in and form the person he is. Mm. Because if you think of any big fundamental change like that, like it isn't like turning on a light bulb. Yeah, know? no, it takes a while. And actually, yeah. it's really it, that's um, kind of embodied really well when uh, he has to remember all the library and facts keep popping into his head that he doesn't it fully understand. And he's like, he's wrestling with all these mm-hmm. concepts. He's like, what does that mean? And it's driving him crazy. Mm-hmm. So it's not a smooth transition at all. That's, that is something that I do like about his yeah. transition, I have to say. Like, if, if you think, remember when we were in a, a college junior undergrad and we started doing, like, stuff like, you know, critical theory and cultural theory and all of this idea, all of these ideas that really thrive on suddenly, like, you know, foregrounding subjectivity and mm. ambiguity and kind of picking apart, like, your things you t- took for granted as natural or neutral or normal. Yeah, yeah. You know, now it's it's sort of, you know, for us probably it's kind of like the way we would approach a lot of things. But then, you know, the, the idea does it seem really intimidating and really, you know, it's very kind of difficult like, to come to like turn. chipping away at a mm. foundation of certainty you had there. Like, you know, what, like, even even if you could tell they sort of made a certain amount of sense and that you couldn't really make a like a, an effective counter-argument, you still didn't just go like, oh, oh yeah, well, I guess that does make sense. Okay, I think that way now, you know? Mm. It's it's this awkward process. And it, it annoys me a lot with, um, like as I said, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm uh, not very religious now and certainly have like no truck with uh, fundamentalism. And I'm I'm very left leaning in my uh, political views, but it annoys me when people who have similar views, whether you know, like kind of whatever, like left leaning, like uh, views with regard to religion or race or gender or you know, uh, political economy or anything like that, when they like, you know, are talking about people who hold different views and feel this frustration that like oh why can't they see us if like you know mm. you're just going to see one glib meme about like you know white privilege on the like on the internet and be like oh my god i realize now everything i think is wrong you know or like exactly like yeah. that you can in one like that we can in once talk about growing up in a uh, patriarchal um society and then expect people to you know 
expect people who we see who you know are in some way uh latently or inherently sexist expect them to just be able to like jump out of all that because we've you know pointed it out with some yeah. like like witty remark you know mm. um like i find that kind of light bulb approach to like oh no this way of thinking is right so all we should do is have to point it out to you and if you don't get it immediately mm. we have the right to get really angry and impatient with you that that really annoys me and i like how brother's journey in this isn't like he gets to a fever and it's like yeah omnianism what a lot of all bollocks mm. like it's this very slow way of and then even at the end what he comes up with what he emerges with is like a combination of yeah it's not just him mm. and his beliefs and all the things he's learned he hasn't just like abandoned one set of beliefs to kind of be converted to a new superior set of mm. you know way of thinking he's like he's made something completely new and completely him mm. I absolutely agree with you on the point that you're making that it frustrates me as well when people just get really really intensely angry like without even considering you know someone else's upbringing and how like uh you know how long they've been leaving such a thing this is something um friend of uh myself and uh, michelle we discussed mm-hmm. around the time of the same-sex marriage referendum and we one thing we both agreed on was like i think uh some older people they kind of give them a free pass on it because you have to bear in mind they have been thinking this way for like the majority of their lives which can be up to like you know 70 80 90 years mm-hmm. you know it it's you're not going to be able to just tell them actually you're wrong it's not as simple as that it's kind of, actually Terry Pratchett puts it in a really really succinct kind of way where uh Brutha is talking about the way he thinks he says thinking about the way you thought is like trying to open a box with a crowbar from the inside yeah. that's that's inside yeah, it already yeah. I was like that's really really accurate because like you know it's even coming to terms with that metaphor is kind of <laughs> difficult you know you're like but how you, you know so it's like it's it's something that you need to spend time on and it's actually something that um is brought up again at another point that I really really like where uh, the tyrant uh, or no sorry Vorba says uh, we don't have uh, a word for slavery mm-hmm. in Omnia and the tyrant says well yes I imagine fish don't have a word for water either and I'm like and Bruce is like what do you mean by that and he can't even comprehend mm-hmm. the idea that like you know he's being oppressed because he's, this is all he's known you know it's um it's it, it's an interesting it's interesting the approach they go for and uh, especially like the fact that you know they attack well not attack but satirize uh, religion at least in in uh, because I think, you know, that is the most prevalent idea that has been ingrained in most people's culture. That in that um, when it comes to trying to wrestle with an idea that's, you know, that much ingrained with you and you struggle to try and, like, you know, figure it out. Certainly would have been the case around the time this was written, which I think was early 90s, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, early, early to mid 90s. Yeah, so I mean, it, it would have started. So. It's actually, it, it's very apt timing that this came out because this would be around the time when, you know... Uh, things are bubbling underneath uh, the church and, you know, allegations are starting to come out, I believe, or... Yeah, yeah, in Ireland it would have been... Yeah. Well, like, yeah, I, th- it, it, yeah, I don't or, think it would have happened around. Around. Like, Murphy and Ryan reports stuff didn't come clearly in 2000s, but they're certainly, like, stuff... Stuff, stuff was bubbling under the surface anyway, yeah. so, you know, it would have been very apt timing, all right. Um, actually, um, just one other thing that I find uh, really interesting is... Um, and this is this is a kind of a comment on society in general, but you know that he represents it really well. Is how it's interesting how there are much less religious people um, around now. I feel anyway. Maybe you'll disagree with me, but it seems to be you know directly the direct correlation between uh, how much knowledge we can acquire and like you know in some ways people uh, have 
access to so much more knowledge and like you know scientific fact and it's it's all widespread and you know so the uh faith in uh organized religion has like noticeably dropped um but having said that terry patrick brings up a really interesting point where i think brutha says that oh yeah so at one point uh brutha says just because you can explain it doesn't mean it's not a miracle yeah yeah and that's, that's one of my favorite quotes that's a it. that's a fantastic line like and, and it, actually there's another point where uh on says let there be another leaf and brutha just like lifts a leaf and put it there and like technically speaking because a god did it that's a miracle mm. you know but it's you know it's quite obvious i think there's, there's a whole section there where uh Om is talking, or maybe it's the narrator talking about like uh, all the wonderful, incredible things that happen, like you know, in nature and uh, in the human body and stuff like that. But you see crying statues, and you're yeah, like, yeah, I think it's Whoa. all Om. <laughs> <laughs> and suddenly <laughs> that's amazing, yeah. you know. Yeah. So it's it's interesting that that's the way our belief system works. Is like once you can explain something, all its mystique. Well, yeah, as its mystique is lost, but. You know, it's interesting that, like, um, yeah, once we couldn't explain something, it's like automatically back, back in, back in the day, back in, like, say, let's say, start of the twentieth century, if you couldn't explain it, it was like, well, God or something like that. You know, it wasn't a simple case of now where, well, we can't explain it. Well, we should probably try and figure it out. Maybe there is yeah, something we don't yeah. know. And you it's know? like now, even when you think it can be explained, it takes away from that. Like all of the technology we deal with every day, that you or I or the average layperson doesn't you know really know much about how it works but we just take it for granted that like oh yeah it does like someone's figured it out so yeah there's no god in this iphone yeah like, you know, so. yeah so, so we just take it for the kind of the wonder of those things for granted mm. um or even like as as um points out like just like natural processes how they, you know how trees grow and things like that that we're just so used to it yeah do you think um, actually science is becoming like our new god at this stage because technically like yeah we don't really know how like you know i i don't know how my phone works like you know so i'm just like well science in the way that some people would say well god yeah well like i mean i think it's it's an argument that's always that's been put out there for the last few decades all right in various forms i i think like there's something to be said for it all right and that like again going back to that sort of glib dismissal of uh, religion or any uh, point of view that disagrees with your own it does annoy me when people like dismiss uh you know religion like oh well, like how could you believe all that and it's just like the, the things that we believe without seeking an explanation for mm. because we just presume like like you know you would uh, people would mock uh, religious people for being naive for like oh do you think god just takes care of that but well at the same time we're willing to accept like mm. yeah this just works that way i haven't really looked into it um and i think there's definitely like a kind of um how would you put it like a sort of in the same way that there's the part where they're in the old um, abandoned temple in the desert and Brutus mm-hmm. looking at the pottery and he says about the people with the knives and he's like, it isn't murder if you do it for a god. Yeah, great um, line, man. Like, like there is a kind of, like in terms of scientific progress, there is a sort of sense of it being above and beyond morality. You know, like a lot of scientists will just say like, oh, well, this is just going to happen. You know, this is like, like, yeah, okay, I made it in my research, but if it wasn't me, it would be someone else. And mm. like science is just this steadily moving objective curve that we can't really influence. We can just sort of help along. Mm. So the idea of like, should you make this or develop it doesn't come into it. Yeah, you know? absolutely. Um, uh, like I heard it recently, uh, Radio Labs and a really fascinating podcast about um, all this technology that can 
essentially sort of Photoshop. I think it's called like Voco or Vokov, and like it's a Photoshop for your voice. So oh. I can make it sound like you said things you never said. Oh wow! And similarly, there's like video ones. So you think I mean that would completely could completely destroy already in this fake news riven world where and destroy our idea of like what truth is or what you wow. actually Shoot. believe. And in the episode, the interviewer is obviously really taken with this, and he's talking to the scientist who's uh, developing one of these things, and he like he keeps putting it there. He's just like, D- do you? not see a problem with this and she's just like oh she seems really uncomfortable with the question and she's like I just you know I'm just a scientist I'm just researching and like there's a similar kind of I suppose abdication of moral responsibility to some kind of outside seemingly objective factor that there would be in the worst excesses of religion you know where like Mm. in like whether it be omnism or the like Spanish Inquisition or you know ISIS or whoever else now, where they're just saying no, we're just okay to do this because it's not us, it's God. He want you know mm. God wants this in a similar way. There's you know people, some scientists work on some very questionable things just on the basis of like, well you know we can whether this, this is right or wrong doesn't come into it because it's just scientific advancement. Mm. Um, but what's that quote from Jurassic Park? Yeah. <laughs> you know you you didn't stop long enough to what was it? Um, yeah, well, you were so preoccupied of whether or not you could, you didn't stop to think whether you should. Yeah, yeah, oh, well, it's, 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 it's precisely that. So like, dinosaurs, basically, are what you're saying. Dinosaurs is exactly what I'm saying. Dinosaurs everywhere. But, um, well, while I mentioned a temple, but the, the bin in the desert with all of the small gods is mm. wonderfully eerie. And I think it's so It is very haunting. Mm. Going back to Reaper Man, where, like, death dying was depicted as such a worse thing for death than it is for humans because he sort of won't have an afterlife the way humans will because he Mm. isn't really one it's interesting that like non-existence is depicted as much worse for a god than it is for a mortal in this one Mm. like om uses the metaphor of the sparrow flying through the lighted room with darkness before and darkness that's a very good metaphor yeah Yeah, but it's one that like early christians use to convert people about like like this is the fleetingness of our lives and you know here's like a reason to try and like believe in uh, some force that is shaping what went before and will give us something when we come after you know Mm. and so they're saying like we're you know before god who is like represents the infinity we're just this tiny team we're despite our lives there's a spiral in the light of the room no matter how much we do or how long we live but it is it's applied to gods and Mm. you know um it's a nice little flip on its head that like you know it uses uh, he uses a lot of like um, popular culture or like you know popular sayings and like tends to like I mean apart from the flat earth thing with the turtle moves and mm-hmm. like that thing. Uh, did you catch the um, the seven seal reference at the end with um, the old monk playing chess with death? Oh yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. And it's a throwback to sorcery as well, where death says he can't remember how the horsey ones move. Oh yeah, I, don't, I haven't read that once in a while, so yeah. But um, like. It's really interesting that he referenced the Seven Seal. Like my, my first reaction when I read this was um, because I, I didn't know what the film was the first time I read this because that was years ago. Mm-hmm. But I knew that image, you know, of the man playing chess with death from that old movie from the fifties. But um, I was reading up a bit on the book. I still haven't seen it. I probably should. Have but, you heard the Scott Walker song? Do you know, I had a feeling you were going to bring that up <laughs> because when I was looking it up, that came up. <laughs> so good. But. Um, yeah, like it's it's interesting because Ingmar Bergman, who directed it, who I love, absolutely love that guy, but um, he directed that film because he had kind of a shaky belief in God. But it's interesting because, like this book, it was very ambiguous. Like he was raised very, very Catholic, 
and um, didn't know you could be very Catholic, did you? Not just Catholic, very Catholic. <laughs> but like his fate was tested a lot of times. And one of the best lines in that book, and it applies here in particular to Vorbis when he's in the desert, was like he described being a, a follower of God as loving someone who is out there in the darkness but never appears no matter how loudly you call. Oh, wow. And I'm like, that apart... I mean, there's so many parts of the book that works for. Like, there's a point where... Um, Brutha is searching for the guy. He's like, I can't hear his voice, you know? Mm-hmm. And then there's the point where it flips on his head towards the end where Om is calling out to Brutha, but Brutha can't hear him. Yeah. And then, of course, there's Vorbis who is, like, stuck in the desert. And at this point, he's lost his faith. Like, he thinks he has his faith, but he doesn't. So, you know, he's looking for something that he doesn't really have access to. It's just, uh, it's it's really good. Like, and that scene in particular is interesting because the main message that they like I, I don't know if you're how familiar with that or the film but that I don't want to ruin it too much for you I'll, I'll try not to but there are multiple points where the chessboard comes out and they have recurring matches and you know kind of general lessons are kind of half hinted at mm-hmm. but the main lesson that is taken away from it is hang on it's it's not about who wins but how well you play okay. so the whole idea it's like you know it's not about um the way you lived your life it's it's not the about the way you lived your life depending on someone else's rules you know it's how well you felt you lived your life you know so it's 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 the message that like you know anybody who uh has lost their faith kind of justify themselves with the whole idea is like well listen i'm going to live by my morals how i interpret them and you know I, I, that's how i live my life as well i'm sure it's how you live your life and it is kind of uh a reconciliation for ourselves you know we can we can it, it makes us feel better you know mm-hmm. and i think that was kind of the point that he was trying to get across and actually in the book i really like the way that uh, the very very last line is death going it's like how did the little horsey ones move again or the horse-headed ones move again and that kind of embodies that idea really well just by throwing a little bit of comedy into that whole somber scene uh, as well so I don't know. I found I found that interesting. Yeah, yeah. and now that you say it, I hadn't thought of it, but it's interesting that it comes after the whole idea of um strong arming the other gods into like the two things he uh, tells them: this is not a game, mm. and here and now we we are alive. Yeah. Um, and I I find that whole idea of like that being like, and the book not only being about Britta learning, uh, you know, learning something and progressing, but also about um doing it interesting because. While we can find parallels for Brita either in ourselves or people we know or so on, like it's harder to look at like a god and say, you know, like, like who is that talking to about, mm-hmm. like, you know, that uh, this is not a game. I mean, I suppose it, it speaks to figures in power in general and how they should be, like, in not regarding things as a, you know. But I, uh, think, I think you can, like, the everyman can look at it and have, like, similar feelings towards it because when you see at the end of it, even though God is like a hundred foot tall, like, you know, uh, divine being, he kind of has the lower hand. Like, you know, Brotha has the upper hand on him. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And like, he, he doesn't, but he does. It's kind, of, it's kind of like the fundamental truth and trivial truth all over again. Because like, if you look at trivially, Om has the upper hand because he's God and like Brutha, the only thing he has is weakness. But the fundamental truth of it is that Brutha is the one who has all the power because he gave him all his followers, you know, so... And, like, at this point, Om has become this being who now appreciates each mm-hmm. individual life as, you know, uh, clearly represented when he goes up to uh, Dun Manifestum. And 
it's just it's 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 just really um I, I buy into Om's arc far more than I buy into Brutus to be honest. I because I feel like he has I I feel like Brutus serves Om's character better than Om serves Brutus, personally. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I like him. Um, I, I I like the distance on the game thing is great. Like I love him serving I just think it's interesting to think of it from the idea of like, you know that like as said, Om does have a journey. He's not just like a plot device. So you're mm. kind of being asked to relate to a god, and it feels like weird because when you know when you go to um, where where are the parallels there. But I don't mean weird in a bad way. I, I, mm. If anything, it's a strength that like yeah 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 that that it does that. Um, so yeah, did you have any more notes, or will we get to what uh, I feel is going to be a pretty contentious? Uh, yeah, more than likely. Yeah. Uh, the only thing I there's I find myself doing this every time is like there's some lines that I write down that I really like, but they don't really fit into any of the points oh, I'm like, trying to shoot. make. Yeah. So uh, just like a few that I'll just rattle off. Like one that I really enjoyed, where it's very early on in the book, where um, Brother Numrod comes out <laughs> and uh, he's um, asking Brutha like, "Why are you talking to the turtle?" And then he starts linking it back to like the voices, like the seductive voices. And he says to him, uh, when it comes to rampant eroticism, you could do better than a tortoise. <laughs> Which is a great line. There's also, um, there's a really, really uh, great line here. I just have it written down because it's a, it's a long one. In, in the rainforest of Brutus subconscious, the butterfly of doubt emerged and flapped an experimental wing, all unaware of what chaos theory has to say about this sort of thing. Uh, <laughs> Which is a great one. And this, <laughs> while we're at um, uh, psychological metaphors that use natural landscapes, um, <laughs> fear is strange soil. Mainly it grows obedience like corn, which grows in rows and makes weeding easy. But sometimes it grows the potatoes of defiance which flourish <laughs> underground. It's wonderful. It's good. This is this is my favorite part of every podcast. Just going over. Do you know what line I really yeah. like? That one of my favorite ones in almost in that it's so nonsensical and I really enjoyed it was um, Om says something really sarcastically to Brutha and he says there was a short pause in which uh, Om contemplated the futility of sarcasm in the presence of Brutha. It was like throwing meringues at a castle. <laughs> <laughs> fantastic line <laughs> actually there's one that I found really interesting um, in the library when we're first introduced to it and I think it's uh, Orn who says these books aren't really for reading they're more for writing that was just it, 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 I couldn't really figure out how it fit into all the other points but I found it kind of interesting in the approach that writers might even have towards books you know just that I don't expect people to read this. I just want to be able to say I've written it. Yeah. Which is kind yeah. of like how uh, all the philosophers react to it. It's as, as an academic, it felt very academic. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I believe it. You're, yeah, you're yeah. writing something that doesn't matter if people read it. It just you can say that you've written it, and it makes it, it makes you look good. Feels good. It's, it's a great thing to bring up at parties. <laughs> yeah, you know, um, uh, like I, and it ties back into that thing about did I just talk about speaking to philosophers it's easy because they're not really listening they're just thinking about what they're going to say mm, you mm. know that they, whatever they don't care if other people read it the exactly they, yeah they've had their say actually uh, there's one more line that I realise does tie up into the whole notion of you know simply living life like the right way and the, the way you see it as like the, the right way but uh, there's a point another point in the library where Brutha is looking at the book of plants and mm. he says oh wow they're beautiful and uh, Didactylo says, yes, that's one of the many uses of plants, and one which old Origocrates neglected to notice as well. 
you know, it's the whole idea of like, you know, like he has something like the 5,000 pieces oh, of class yeah, and no, like he's no. all looking at the practicalities and all that kind of thing, not just look how good they look, why don't we just mm-hmm. enjoy them, you know? One last thing yeah. I want to bring up that I think that you, you probably have as well. The librarian's cameo when the, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the library is burning. Um, the, uh, do you know what? It's annoying because I remember getting really excited when I read it. It says, ah, oh, yes, now I can finally figure out if it's actually in the past or the present day. And I'm like... L space is all about traveling through time and space. God damn it! Doesn't explain anything. <laughs> yeah, I, I suppose actually that's something we should touch on because. Oh wait, no. Sorry, it does explain it. I think because doesn't uh, it say that like the librarian uh, saved a couple of books and then immediately afterwards says and like many 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 years later a couple of like perfect copies of these books like showed up at unseen university. Um, so certainly that I'd say mm-hmm. suggests that it would be in the past. I can find it. Um... Do I, I think I have it. It's on page 216. Okay. Sorry, folks, this, but this is really, really important. <laughs> We've been trying to figure this out for ages. <laughs> yeah, here we go. Sometime, sometime later. Um, okay, it says sometime later. <laughs> that's, that's Again, very, very vague. Okay, so we still don't know where this book takes place or when. Fox yeah, I'm, I'm sure most people listening to this will know, but this like, caused a tizzy among the... The, the masochists who try to make some futile attempt at building a, a coherent Discworld timeline <laughs> because uh, you've got the, the, as you said the Elspace thing really doesn't clarify mm. uh, clarify any further but you've got Zeno and a bid in it the two philosophers who feature in pyramids which is very much set in the the present of the Discworld because when Tepic is in Ankh-Morpork there's um, there's a couple of characters I think it mentions a few incident like assassin characters who mm like Aaron, City Watch ones and, and, and other ones. But then later we'll have a Wash Pot show up in the City Watch and uh, Mike Lee Oates in Carpage of Galem, who are obviously like Omnians of um of a reformed Omnia. They're more like Jehovah's Witnesses mm. where it's just all about kind of uh, you know peaceful but insistent uh, preaching. And that would seem to imply that they are like many years from you know Bruto's uh, it's called the renovation of, of Omnianism mm. but at the same time I think there's one or two remarks in there that comment on that being a relatively recent development um, it might just be a case of you know a recent development in the context of all Omnian belief yeah, which you know it was a recent development in the case of religion is you know religions have longer lifespans than people most of the time yeah. so like in this space of religion like Vatican II is a recent development that is whatever 50 years old now um, I like to think that it is set in the past but like there's no it doesn't seem to be any yeah. real way of knowing I suppose we'll get to this more when we eventually get to tea for time but personally it doesn't really bother me you know like it didn't um, it only bothers when you think about it like we're doing now <laughs> yeah yeah like dogs yeah <laughs> the, the thing with the librarian show up I, I found it curious because like Otherwise, like, oh, you know, this, this book is so um, removed from the, the others in terms of the plot. And, well, like, okay, I'm Zeno and Abid who are in Pyramids. But you wouldn't need to know that. You know, mm-hmm. like, they they show up and get reintroduced here. Yeah. You have later Omnian characters showing up. But, again, you don't need to know that. Like, this book feels very self-contained. Yeah, very I mean, so. really, like, Life Fantastic and Color of Magic are the only straight sequel pairings. Most of them are self-contained in a way. But this one feels even more so 
So the librarian said, like, it's, it is a lovely cameo. And I love how he even points out how, like, yeah, this has nothing to do with the story. But yeah, just in case you're worried about those books getting destroyed. And that is but, but, so but, easy but for that is, not to it work. It is sort of odd, like, yeah. because you can imagine reading this book, having never read any other Discworld books, and it not presenting a problem until you get to this one part. Like, Who's this ape? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> getting get towards the end, is that ape going to show back up again? <laughs> it almost shouldn't work, but the fact that it's so... I resent using this word in like proper conversation, but it's so random that it does work. Like you know, it's just so, it's bizarre. Yeah. It's uh... anyway. I suppose we should probably try and uh, rank these now, and this is probably going to be a difficult <laughs> yeah, ranking situation. Yeah, yeah, this is so. Um, should we read out the list uh, as it stands at the moment? Sure. Uh, you wanna go? So number one, we have pyramids. Number two is guards, guards. Number three is Mort. Number four is Reaperman. Number five is Witches Abroad. Number six is Moving Pictures. Number seven is Weird Sisters. Number eight is The Light Fantastic. Number nine, Equal Rights. Number ten, Sorcery. Number eleven, The Color of Magic. And number twelve, Eric. So, uh, Colm, you tell me where you think that should be first, and then I'll tell you where I think it should be. <coughs> really? That bad? Uh, um, uh, I'll be honest, I, I think this should be number one. Oh, wow, really? <laughs> yeah, okay. Yeah. It'll have to be a compromise then. And I, I love pyramids, but I, I, I think like, I think this, I don't know, this just has more, like, like, like pyramids is wonderfully uh, structured and versatile and has a lot of great teams and con- like conceptually pyramids is staggering at points. And again, I think like Dios is, you know, he's even more, a little more sympathetic and complex than Vorbis is. But um, but there's just like a force to this that you know like mm. like the, like the bits the kind of like the the concept the conceptual stuff about religion and about like you know like Om um, uh, meeting the other small gods in the desert and uh, Bruta kind of struggling with his own fate they don't just grab me from a like wow imagine thinking about religion like that sort of way they also just like you know punch me right in the gut the mental mm. gut I don't get it <laughs> yeah, I was actually punched while reading this um, that I like I, I can't quite put you know put my finger on it but it just yeah it's and, and then it has so many bits of great genuine emotion too like I, mm. like Brutus uh decision to actually go and help Vorbis after he dies but also the bit where he you know uh, where like there's three wonderfully I don't know like like bits that are so sort of moral they're moving to me and it's like Brutus decision to help uh Vorbis when when they're when they're both dead in the afterlife uh when Bruta and Om are in the desert and Om says who cares if you kill Vorbis we'll all be dead in a hundred years and he mm. says here and now we're alive like you know it's it's so simple but it's so like I I don't know it, it kind of it sort of is the perfect uh Reposter kind of anchor against existential dread mm. um, and the other one is when he's guiding Vorbis through the labyrinth and he thinks I could run away and leave him and no one would ever know and he thinks mm. I'd know and uh, like those bits are powerful to me not only in just like making me admire Bruta as a character but I I, I just find I, I find him genuinely emotional like I buy into his the struggle involved in, in like in having to think and act that way you know and, mm. and they grab me um yeah yeah and like like, and then the lovely little bits like the bit when uh, all, all the other people die and you get 
like again the the desert the crossing the desert thing comes up throughout it when other car- minor characters die mm. and their confrontation with like with death and what they're going to do afterwards and how it's almost a relief like the, the sailor is going to find another afterlife like one that they prefer mm. it's just so fun and heartwarming after you know what you've previously seen them being like absolutely terrified after Vorbis has kind of compelled them to do something which they believe will visit a terrible storm upon them and sure enough does visit a terrible storm upon them and then you see them panicking to the point where they're just going to kill Bruta even though they don't really want to because they think it's the only thing that will <laughs> save them and then just to see them so sort of almost flabbergasted at their own relief of wow the worst is over and we can kind of do anything now is <laughs> lovely um so yeah, unfortunately, <laughs> I do not feel the same way about this at all now. I mean, there's objectively there are some like there's some great imagery. Um, it tackles some very interesting themes, but it just doesn't have the clear emotional impact that it had on you. It just doesn't hit me that way. Um, any consolation though, I don't think it should be at the very end. At least, like I, if I had to rank it, I think I'd probably I'd put it just above Moving Pictures at number six. That'll be my because I mean, whereas all the other ones, um, like all all of the ones, like at this point, it's like I really get invested in, and like you know they 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 neatly tackle some interesting themes. Whereas this one, now admittedly, it tackles some heady themes, but I just can't get as invested into the story as you do. I don't know why it is. It's just it doesn't grab me. Um, ambitious, but I, in my personal opinion. And here we're clearly going to disagree. I just don't think it works as well as um, you think it does. So uh, if it was me, I'd put it at number six. So if we were to compromise, that would put it either at three or four. Um, Personally, uh, I'm kind of happy to go either way. It's up to you. So do you think... I I mean, seeing... Let's see. One, two, three. Wait, actually, would it be... Oh, between... It would actually be number four then, wouldn't it? Oh, between six and one, um, yeah, it's it's, yeah, it's, so a, well, it's, it's it's a three, it's a three or four. Um, see, yeah, like if we go if we go in between those two, like oh wait, no, 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 sorry, what? oh no, no, sorry, you know, it would be, it, I think it'd be three then, wouldn't it? Um, well, there's no middle point of like we're going from a scale of six, so there's mm. no middle point there because it's an even number, so it'd be three or four. Um, I think I could see three because I do take w- one thing I will say that Small God does better than Mort does is its ending. Even though we we it's both we found both of them problematic. Uh, me less so on Mort, but still uh, both of them are problematic. But I think it, we can both agree that Small God's has a better ending than Mort. So would we be happy with number three? Yeah, my only thing about having it beneath guards guards is that i feel like i uh, as much as i love guards guards i feel like it's going to be outstripped by like subsequent watch novels you know mm. um and i think like like i i, I for me like i'll, I'll, I'll like I'm, i know i'm not going to completely argue around and like i there's definitely at least one, maybe two watch novels. I think like are as good or better than better than this. Mm. But I don't think all of them are, and I I, I think like I I wouldn't like to see Small Gods below all of the, mm. you know, um, like and in, in a way that I feel like like for me at least uh, I know I know we disagree on this, but like Small Gods was like 
the ultimate realization of what had been going on about the previous few books about like really uh, about belief shaping mm. people um and it's the best realization of that whereas i don't think guards guards is the best realization of a lot of the stuff he talks about in the watch novels because what we'll see them oh sorry we'll see them later you know mm. uh like guards guards is excellent and like maybe better than some of the subsequent watch novels we'll, we'll see but uh I, I feel like there's still more to be built on there whereas in like in small gods he feels like yeah, did I can't really draw any lines. I was gonna say he feels like he's finished something, but obviously, again, he will revisit certain teams in certain small ways. Um, mm. Do you know? Ideally, what we should have done is do two lists, and then like at the end of it, just see like how. Yeah, to compare. but I, I think this is more fun because if we done it that way, like uh, you know, the end of this pod, each episode, of this podcast would you just be saying like, "I've got a number six, and I'd be like, "I've got a number one, and like you know, that's that's that. Like, yeah. Um, you see, the thing is, uh, again, I, again, it's a case of that I think I disagree with you because, like, I just, I think all of the guards, guards, or, sorry, I think, I have to revisit them to be sure, but I love the guards books, like, they're probably my favourite, like, uh, subsection of the mm-hmm. Discworld, so, and if you were to come up to me and say, like, you know, top of your head, do you think, like, Small Gods is better than any of the guards books, and, like, maybe some of the later ones, like, uh, Snuff or something like that, but, um for the most part I'd be like no so yeah I'm just like see the, the thing I, I find I find it difficult with um, when we get to the, the I suppose what you call like the sub-series books like the books mm. where you know the the witches ones and the guards ones is it's very hard to view them in isolation True. and I'm looking at this against guards guards and I'm thinking like now I know you you kind of didn't buy Brutha's arc in the way that I did but like if you look at like his and Om's arc and versus like if you try and look at guards guards on its own like you know mm. how the characters develop in that versus how they develop over all of the guards books i feel like small gods is more in that way you know what i mean mm. like i feel like carrot and vime still have some developing to do after guards guards that will which is good because we'll see it done wonderfully in subsequent books but like i i, I feel like like I feel like Small Gods does more on its own than Guards Guards does. Like you know, like looking at Guards Guards is just uh, it's it's hard to l- look at it and take it away from all of the books that mm. will follow on from it and like you know build wonderfully on its characters. And I don't want to make it sound like as well like they build wonderfully on it because Guards Guards is just some like you know uh, desultory first step that you, you know and and, mm. and it's so like it, it's it's a wonderful book in itself and like. I, I think at, at this list stands at the moment for it is it's a wordy number two. I just think Small Gods is better. Um, so you basically I, want me to compromise further than I already <laughs> have, is what you're saying. It's not the same I'm sorry, dude. Like, I just don't like the book as much as you do. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, do it anyway. <laughs> no, no. Uh, I know, no, I'm just trying to... I'm, I'm trying to... Cause, I think that the kind of like mathematical way we began this discussion of okay you've got a six I've got a one so it should be around you know three or four makes sense as the beginning point of the discussion but I don't feel like it's an entirely satisfying way to just like that this is how we compromise is just through sheer like oh like a kind of golden mean thing of you know okay it's neither here nor there so it's here like I I feel I don't know there's well, see, this is the thing. Like, I mean, let's say, for example, like I liked exactly half of the Discworld books, and you liked exactly the other half, and we ranked them all. They'd all be number one. You know, <laughs> the mean system isn't ideal. It's just like 
what else can we do? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know. I just, I, I guess, I invested more in my powers of rhetoric to win you around than yeah, sorry, than dude, no, apparently not. Case. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, you know, whatever. You're going to hell on the back of a flaming <laughs> turtle. Uh, <laughs> Well, you just described my Tuesday now. <laughs> um, okay, yeah. Even though uh, Colm is than mine. very unhappy with it, I think we're going for yeah, number yeah, three. Yeah, we're going number three. Yeah. <laughs> but he's staring daggers at me right now. So as you've heard, um, if, if you don't hear from me at the next episode, I have been boiled alive <laughs> on top of a brass turtle. <laughs> you'll, you'll just be replaced with like, like a, another co-host who's just like me with a voice filter. <laughs> so again, I won't find anyone it's like next episode. I won't find anyone who disagrees with me <laughs> We have a new co-host now, someone who won't disagree with me. <laughs> oh, and look at all the books have rearranged themselves. It's Colum and Colum with a K. <laughs> <laughs> it's just um, going to be that voice modulating thing that you were talking about earlier. It'll just be you like and then you again yeah. but it sounds like me yeah. now what I, I take everything I no, said what, what I'll do is I'll just use that technology to make it sound like you said in this uh, in, in this podcast I'm like oh yeah small gods definite number one now I'll, I'll play it back to you when we put it up on SoundCloud I'll be like yeah Steve so you, you uh, I, I might seem that way but you definitely agreed this is the fundamental truth you, you might remember ranking at a number three but that's just a superficial truth <laughs> right. Okay. Um, I no, I said, like, I, yeah, I, that's uh, it, it, moments like this are kind of frustrating for both of us. But I, again, I think it's like it's ultimately more interesting because if either of us had to do a list, whatever ourselves, we might struggle over for a while. But ultimately, it's an exercise we do, and you know, whatever, in mm. twenty thirty minutes. Whereas, whereas this, this is something you kind of like. Yeah, I don't think. See, this is the thing. When we're looking at the individual books, we're going to be like, "Oh, I'm not sure how I feel about that." But when we see the list in the end, we can kind of see the overall shape, and we can get like a vague idea. Says, yes, we can see the ones that we clearly disagreed on towards the end, and the ones we clearly agreed mm-hmm. on towards the top. There'll just be ones like this that we're just going to be like, "Well, neither is happy the way that one worked yeah. out." Yeah. <laughs> but ah, well, what can we do? So, I, I guess, guess that's so, all there yeah, is to I say. Guess, I guess, I guess that that is that. Uh, Small Gods, new number three, and we will see you next time for Lords and Ladies. Toodaloo, and don't forget, the turtle moves. That it does. (laughs) 